Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you, regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. I'm sorry for the abruptness of the episode last week. Last Sunday, while prepping the episode, my computer suddenly popped and crackled at me like the sound of sparks going off and a smell of burning filled the air. I immediately shut down my computer, took it back to the shop I had gotten it from just two weeks previous, and asked them to take a look at it. They did, said it was fine, nothing wrong, and gave it back. That was Monday, around 4 p.m., so I had all of five hours to prep, record, and edit the episode. If you live stateside, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, despite its problematic history, is one of my favorite holidays, and I had a very good time with my wife's family. And now we're entering into the holiday season, which means Christmas ghost stories will be coming up in a few weeks, so I suppose I should get started on that. I should have saved this for Christmas ghost stories, because it's a long one that's going to take up the next four weeks, but hey, you get a lot of ghosts, so that's fun. Dionea by Vernon Lee Amor Dure, Passages from the Diary of Spiridion Trepka Part 1 Urbania, August 20th, 1885 I had longed these years and years to be in Italy, to come face to face with the past. And was this Italy? Was this the past? I could have cried, yes, cried for disappointment when I first wandered about Rome with an invitation to dine at the German embassy in my pocket and three or four Berlin and Munich vandals at my heels, telling me where the best beer and sauerkraut could be had and what the last article by Grimm or Momsen was about. Is this folly? Is it falsehood? Am I not myself a product of modern northern civilization? Is not my coming to Italy due to this very modern scientific vandalism, which has given me a traveling scholarship because I have written a book, like all those other atrocious books, of erudition and art criticism? Nay, am I not here at Urbania on the express understanding that in a certain number of months I shall produce just another such book? Dost thou imagine, thou miserable Spiridion, thou pole grown into the semblance of a German pedant, doctor of philosophy, professor even, author of a prize essay on the despots of the 15th century, dost thou imagine that thou, with thy ministerial letters and proof sheets in thy black professorial coat pocket, canst ever come in spirit into the presence of the past? Too true, alas. But... Let me forget it, at least, every now and then. As I forgot it this afternoon, while the white bullocks dragged my gig slowly winding along interminable valleys, crawling along interminable hillsides, with the invisible droning torrent far below, and only the bare gray and reddish peaks all around, up to this town of Urbania. Forgotten of mankind, towered and battlemented on the high Apennine ridge, Sigillo, Penna, Fasombrone, Mercatello, Montemurlo, each single village name, as the driver pointed it out, brought to my mind the recollection of some battle or some great act of treachery of former days. And as the huge mountains shut out the setting sun, and the valleys filled with bluish shadow and mist, only a band of threatening smoke-red remaining behind the towers and cupolas of the city on its mountaintop, 
and the sound of church bells floated across the precipice from Urbania, I almost expected, at every turning of the road, that a troop of horsemen, with beaked helmets and clawed shoes, would emerge, with armor glittering and pennons waving in the sunset. And then, not two hours ago, entering the town at dusk, passing along the deserted streets with only a smoky light here and there under a shrine or in front of a fruit stall or a fire reddening the blackness of a smithy, passing beneath the battlements and turrets of the palace. Ah, that was Italy. It was the past. August 21st. And this is the present. Four letters of introduction to deliver and an hour's polite conversation to endure with the vice prefect, the syndic, the director of the archives, and the good man to whom my friend Max had sent me for lodgings. August 22nd to the 27th. Spent the greater part of the day in the archives and the greater part of my time there in being bored to extinction by the director thereof who today spouted Aeneas Silvius's commentaries for three quarters of an hour without taking breath. From this sort of martyrdom, what are the sensations of a former racehorse being driven in a cab? If you can conceive them, they are those of a pole turned Prussian professor. I take refuge in long rambles through the town. This town is a handful of tall black houses huddled onto the top of an alp, long narrow lanes trickling down its sides like the slides we made on hillocks in our boyhood, and in the middle the superb red brick structure, turreted and battlemented, of Duke Ottobuono's palace, from whose windows you look down upon a sea, a kind of whirlpool of melancholy gray mountains. Then there are the people— Dark, bushy-bearded men riding about like brigands, wrapped in green-lined cloaks upon their shaggy pack-mules, or loitering about great, brawny, low-headed youngsters like the party-colored bravos in Signorelli's frescoes, the beautiful boys like so many young Raphaels, with eyes like the eyes of bullocks, and the huge women, Madonnas or St. Elizabeths, as the case may be, with their clogs firmly poised on their toes and their brass pitchers on their heads as they go up and down the steep black alleys. I do not talk much to these people. I fear my illusions being dispelled. At the corner of a street opposite Francesco di Giorgio's beautiful little portico is a great blue and red advertisement, representing an angel descending to crown Elias Howe on account of his sewing machines, and the clerks of the vice-prefecture who dine at the place where I get my dinner, yell politics, Minghetti, Carioli, Tunis, ironclads, etc., at each other, and sing snatches of La Fia de Madame Anjou, which I imagine they have been performing here recently. No, talking to the natives is evidently a dangerous experiment. Except indeed perhaps to my good landlord, Signor Notaro Pori, who is just as learned and takes considerably less snuff, or rather brushes it off his coat more often than the director of the archives. I forgot to jot down, and I feel I must jot down in the vain belief that someday these scraps will help, like a withered twig of olive or a three-wicked Tuscan lamp on my table to bring to my mind in that hateful Babylon of Berlin these happy Italian days, I forgot to record that I am lodging in the house of a dealer in antiquities. My window looks up the principal street to where the little column with mercury on the top rises in the midst of the awnings and porticos of the marketplace, bending over the chipped ewers and tubs full of sweet basil, clove, pinks, and marigolds, I can just see a corner of the palace turret and the vague ultramarine of the hills beyond. 
The house, whose back goes sharp down into the ravine, is a queer up-and-down black place, whitewashed rooms, hung with the Raphaels and Francias and Peruginos, whom mine host regularly carries to the chief inn whenever a stranger is expected, and surrounded by old carved chairs, sofas of the empire, embossed and gilded wedding chests, and the cupboards which contain bits of old damask, and embroidered altar cloths, scenting the place with the smell of old incense and mustiness, all of which are presided over by Signor Pori's three maiden sisters, Sora Serafina, Sora Lodovica, and Sora Algisa. The three fates in person, even to the Dithstaffs and their black cats. Sor Azdrubale, as they call my landlord, is also a notary. He regrets the pontifical government, having had a cousin who was a cardinal's train-bearer, and believes that if only you lay a table for two, light four candles made of dead man's fat, and perform certain rites about which he is not very precise, you can, on Christmas Eve and similar nights, summon up San Pasqual Belon, who will write you the winning numbers of the lottery upon the smoked back of a plate." if you have previously slapped him on both cheeks and repeated three Ave Marias. The difficulty consists in obtaining the dead man's fat for the candles and also in slapping the saint before he have time to vanish. If it were not for that, says Sora Azdrubale, the government would have had to suppress the lottery ages ago, eh? September 9th. The history of Urbania is not without its romance, although that romance, as usual, has been overlooked by our dry as dusts. Even before coming here, I felt attracted by the strange figure of a woman which appeared from out of the dry pages of Gualterio's and Padre de Sanctis's histories of this place. This woman is Medea, daughter of Galeazzo IV, Malatesta, Lord of Carpi, wife first of Pierlugi Orsini, Duke of Stimiliano, and subsequently of Guidalfonso II, Duke of Urbania, predecessor of the great Duke Robert II. This woman's history and character remind one of that of Bianca Capello, and at the same time, of Lucrezia Borgia. Born in 1556, she was affianced at the age of twelve to a cousin, a Malatesta of the Romini family. This family having greatly gone down in the world, her engagement was broken, and she was betrothed a year later to a member of the Pico family, and married to him by proxy at the age of fourteen. But this match, not satisfying her own or her father's ambition, the marriage by proxy was, upon some pretext, declared null, and the suit encouraged by the Duke of Stimiliano, a great Umbrian feudatory of the Orsini family. But the bridegroom, Giovan Francesco Pico, refused to submit, pleaded his case before the Pope, and tried to carry off by force his bride, with whom he was madly in love, as the lady was most lovely and of most cheerful and amiable manner, says an old anonymous chronicle. Pico waylaid her litter as she was going to a villa of her father's and carried her to his castle near Mirandola, where he respectfully pressed his suit, insisting that he had a right to consider her as his wife. But the lady escaped by letting herself into the moat by a rope of sheets, and Giovan Francesco Pico was discovered stabbed in the chest by the hand of Madonna Medea de Carpi. He was a handsome youth, only 18 years old. The Pico, having been settled and the marriage with him declared null by the Pope, Medea de Carpi was solemnly married to the Duke of Stimiliano and went to live upon his domains near Rome. Two years later, Pierluigi Orsino was stabbed by one of his grooms at his castle of Stimiliano near Orvieto, and suspicion fell upon his widow, more especially as, immediately after the event, she caused the murderer to be cut down by two servants in her own chamber, but not before he had declared that she had induced him to assassinate his master by a promise of her love.' 
Things became so hot for Medea de Carpi that she fled to Urbania and threw herself at the feet of Duke Guadalfonso II, declaring that she had caused the groom to be killed merely to avenge her good fame, which he had slandered, and that she was absolutely guiltless of the death of her husband. The marvelous beauty of the widowed Duchess of Stimiliano, who was only 19, entirely turned the head of the Duke of Urbania. He affected implicit belief in her innocence, refused to give her up to the Orsinis, kinsmen of her late husband, and assigned to her magnificent apartments in the left wing of the palace, among which the room containing the famous fireplace ornamented with marble cupids on a blue ground. Guadalfonso fell madly in love with his beautiful guest. Hitherto timid and domestic in character, he began publicly to neglect his wife, Madalena Verano of Camerino, with whom, although childless, he had hitherto lived on excellent terms. He not only treated with contempt the admonitions of his advisers and of his suzerain the Pope, but went so far as to take measures to repudiate his wife on the score of quite imaginary ill conduct. The Duchess, Madalena, unable to bear this treatment, fled to the convent of the barefooted sisters at Pizarro, where she pined away while Medea de Carpi reigned in her place at Urbania, embroiling Duke Guadalfonso in quarrels both with the powerful Orsinis, who continued to accuse her of Stimiliano's murder, and with the Veranos, kinsmen of the injured Duchess Madalena, until at length in the year 1576, the Duke of Urbania, having become suddenly, and not without suspicious circumstances, a widower, publicly married Medea de Carpi two days after the decease of his unhappy wife. No child was born of this marriage, but such was the infatuation of Duke Guadalfonso that the new duchess induced him to settle the inheritance of the duchy, having, with great difficulty, obtained the consent of the pope on the boy Bartolomeo, her son by Stimiliano, but whom the Orsinis refused to acknowledge as such, declaring him to be the child of that Giovanni Francesco Pico to whom Medea had been married by proxy and whom, in defense, as she had said, of her honor, she had assassinated and this investiture of the Duke of Urbania onto a stranger and a bastard was at the expense of the obvious rights of the Cardinal Robert, Guadalfonso's younger brother. In May 1579, Duke Guadalfonso died suddenly and mysteriously, Medea having forbidden all access to his chamber, lest, on his deathbed, he might repent and reinstate his brother in his rights. The Duchess immediately caused her son, Bartolomeo Orsini, to be proclaimed Duke of Urbania and herself regent, and with the help of two or three unscrupulous young men, particularly a certain Captain Oliverato de Narni, who was rumored to be her lover, seized the reins of government with extraordinary and terrible vigor, marching an army against the Veranos and Orsinis who were defeated at Seguillo, and ruthlessly exterminating every person who dared question the lawfulness of the succession. While all the time Cardinal Robert, who had flung aside his priest's garbs and vows, went about in Rome, Tuscany, Venice, nay, even to the emperor and the king of Spain, imploring help against the usurper. In a few months, he had turned the tide of sympathy against the duchess regent. The pope solemnly declared the investiture of Bartolomeo Orsini worthless and published the accession of Robert II, Duke of Urbania and Count of Montemerlo, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, and the Venetians secretly promised assistance, but only if Robert were able to assert his rights by main force. Little by little, one town after the other of the duke went over to Robert, and Medea de Carpi found herself surrounded in the mountain citadel of Urbania like a scorpion surrounded by flames. This simile is not mine, but belongs to Raffaello Gualterio, historiographer to Robert II. But, unlike the scorpion, Medea refused to commit suicide. 
It is perfectly marvelous how, without money or allies, she could so long keep her enemies at bay, and Gualterio attributes this to those fatal fascinations which had brought Pico and Stimiliano to their deaths, which had turned the once honest Guadalfonso into a villain, and which were such that, of all her lovers, not one but preferred dying for her, even after he had been treated with ingratitude and ousted by a rival, a faculty which Messer Raffaello Gualterio clearly attributed to hellish connivance. At last, the ex-Cardinal Robert succeeded and triumphantly entered Urbania in November 1579. His accession was marked by moderation and clemency. Not a man was put to death save Oliverato Denarni, who threw himself on the new duke, tried to stab him as he alighted at the palace, and who was cut down by the duke's men, crying, Orsini, Orsini, Medea, Medea, long live Duke Bartolomeo, with his dying breath, although it is said that the duchess had treated him with ignominy. The little Bartolomeo was sent to Rome to the Arsenis, the Duchess respectfully confined in the left wing of the palace. It is said that she haughtily requested to see the new duke, but that he shook his head and in his priest's fashion quoted a verse about Ulysses and the Sirens, and it is remarkable that he persistently refused to see her, abruptly leaving his chamber one day that she had entered it by stealth. After a few months, a conspiracy was discovered to murder Duke Robert, which had obviously been set on foot by Medea, but the young man, one Marcantonioni Frangipani of Rome, denied, even under the severest torture, any complicity of hers, so that Duke Robert, who wished to do nothing violent, merely transferred the duchess from his villa at Sant'Elmo to the convent of the Clarice in town, where she was guarded and watched in the closest manner. It seemed impossible that Medea should intrigue any further, for she certainly saw and could be seen by no one. Yet, she contrived to send a letter and her portrait to one Prinzivali Deli Ordolafi, a youth only 19 years old, of noble Roman old family, and who was betrothed to one of the most beautiful girls of Urbania. He immediately broke off his engagement and shortly afterwards attempted to shoot Duke Robert with a holster pistol as he knelt at mass on the festival of Easter Day. This time, Duke Robert was determined to obtain proofs against Medea. Prinzivali Deli Ordolafi was kept some days without food, then submitted to the most violent tortures, and finally condemned. When he was going to be flayed with red-hot pincers and quartered by horses, he was told that he might obtain the grace of immediate death by confessing the complicity of the Duchess and the confessor and nuns of the convent, which stood in the place of execution outside Porta San Romano, pressed Medea to save the wretch, whose screams reached her, by confessing her own guilt. Medea asked permission to go to a balcony where she could see Prinzivale and be seen by him. She looked on coldly, then threw down her embroidered kerchief to the poor mangled creature. He asked the executioner to wipe his mouth with it, kissed it, and cried out that Medea was innocent. Then, after several hours of torments, he died. This was too much for the patience even of Duke Robert. Seeing that as long as Medea lived, his life would be in perpetual danger, but unwilling to cause a scandal, somewhat of the priest nature remaining, he had Medea strangled in the convent, and, what is remarkable, insisted that only women, two infanticides to whom he remitted their sentence, should be employed for the deed. This clement prince, writes Don Arcangelo Zappi in his Life of Him, published in 1725, can be blamed only for one act of cruelty, the more odious as he had himself, until released from his vows by the Pope, been in holy orders. 
It is said that when he caused the death of the infamous Medea de Carpi, his fear, lest her extraordinary charm should seduce any man, was such that he not only employed women as executioners, but refused to permit her a priest or monk, thus forcing her to die unshriven and refusing her the benefit of any penitence that may have lurked in her adamantine heart. Such is the story of Medea de Carpi, Duchess of Stimiliano Orsini, and then wife of Duke Guadalfonso II of Urbania. She was put to death just 297 years ago. December 1582, at the age of barely seven and twenty, and having, in the course of her short life, brought to a violent end five of her lovers, from Giovanni Francesco Pico to Prinzavalli della Ordelafi. September 20th. A grand illumination of the town in honor of the taking of Rome 15 years ago. Except Sor Asdrubale, my landlord, who shakes his head at the Piedmontisi, as he calls them, the people here are all Italian Assimi. The popes kept them very much down since Urbania lapsed to the Holy See in 1645. September 28th. I have for some time been hunting for portraits of the Duchess Medea. Most of them, I imagine, must have been destroyed, perhaps by Duke Robert II's fear, lest even after her death this terrible beauty should play him a trick. Three or four I have, however, been able to find. One, a miniature in the archive, said to be that which she sent to poor Prince of Ali Delia Ordelafi in order to turn his head. One, a marble bust in the palace lumber room. One, in a large composition, possibly by Barocchio, representing Cleopatra at the feet of Augustus. Augustus is the idealized portrait of Robert II. Round-cropped head, nose a little awry, clipped beard and scar as usual, but in Roman dress. Cleopatra seems to me, for all her oriental dress, and although she wears a black wig, to be meant for Medea de Carpi. She is kneeling, bearing her breast for the victor to strike, but in reality to captivate him, and he turns away with an awkward gesture of loathing. None of these portraits seem very good, save the miniature, but that is an exquisite work, and with it, and the suggestions of the bust, it is easy to reconstruct the beauty of this terrible being. The type is that most admired by the late Renaissance and, in some measure, immortalized by Jean Goujon and the French. The face is a perfect oval, the forehead somewhat over-round with minute curls like a fleece of bright auburn hair, the nose a trifle over-aquiline and the cheekbones a trifle too low. The eyes, gray, large, prominent, beneath exquisitely curved brows and lids just a little too tight at the corners, the mouth, also brilliantly red and most delicately designed, is a little too tight. The lips strained a trifle over the teeth. Tight eyelids and tight lips give a strange refinement and at the same time an air of mystery, a somewhat sinister seductiveness. They seem to take, but not to give. The mouth, with a kind of childish pout, looks as if it could bite or suck like a leech. The complexion is dazzlingly fair the perfect transparent rosette lily of a red-haired beauty, the head, with hair elaborately curled and plaited close to it and adorned with pearls, sits like that of the antique Arethusa on a long, supple, swan-like neck. A curious, at first rather conventional, artificial-looking sort of beauty, voluptuous yet cold, which the more it is contemplated, the more it troubles and haunts the mind, Round the lady's neck is a gold chain with little gold lozenges at intervals on which is engraved the posy or pun, the fashion of French devices is common in those days, amour dure, dure amour. 
The same posy is inscribed in the hollow of the bust, and, thanks to it, I have been able to identify the latter as Medea's portrait. I often examine these tragic portraits, wondering what this face, which led so many men to their death, may have been like when it spoke or smiled. What, at the moment when Medea de Carpi fascinated her victims into love unto death, amor dure, dure amor, as runs her device, Love that lasts, cruel love, yes, indeed, when one thinks of the fidelity and fate of her lovers. October 13th. I have literally not had time to write a line of my diary all these days. My whole mornings have gone in those archives, my afternoons taking long walks in this lovely autumn weather, the highest hills are just tipped with snow, my evenings go in writing that confounded account of the Palace of Urbania which government requires merely to keep me at work at something useless. Of my history, I have not yet been able to write a word. By the way, I must note down a curious circumstance mentioned in an anonymous manuscript life of Duke Robert, which I fell upon today. When this prince had the equestrian statue of himself by Antonio Tassi, Gian Bologna's pupil, erected in the square of the court, he secretly caused to be made, says my anonymous manuscript, a silver statuette of his familiar genius or angel, familiaris ejus angelus seu genius, quad avolgo dicitor idolino, which statuette or idol, after having been consecrated by the astrologers, ab astrologus quibus dam ritibus sacrato, was placed in the cavity of the chest of the effigy by Tossi in order, says the manuscript, that his soul might rest until the general resurrection. This passage is curious, and to me somewhat puzzling. How could the soul of Duke Robert await the general resurrection when, as a Catholic, he ought to have believed that it must, as soon as separated from his body, go to purgatory? Is there some semi-pagan superstition of the Renaissance, most strange, certainly, in a man who had been a cardinal, connecting the soul with a guardian genius who could be compelled by magic rites, Ab astrologis sacrato, the manuscript says of the little idol, to remain fixed to earth so that the soul should sleep in the body until the day of judgment? I confess, this story baffles me. I wonder whether such an idol ever existed or exists nowadays in the body of Tassi's bronze effigy. October 20th. I have been seeing a good deal of late of the vice prefect's son an amiable young man with a lovesick face and a languid interest in Urbanian history and archaeology, of which he is profoundly ignorant. This young man, who has lived at Siena and Lucca before his father was promoted here, wears extremely long and tight trousers which almost preclude his bending his knees, a stick-up collar, and an eyeglass and a pair of fresh kid gloves stuck in the breast of his coat, speaks of Urbania as Ovid might have spoken of Pontus, and complains as well he may, of the barbarism of the young men, the officials who dine at my inn and howl and sing like madmen, and the nobles who drive gigs, showing almost as much throat as a lady at a ball. This person frequently entertains me with his amori, past, present, and future. He evidently thinks me very odd for having none to entertain him with in return. He points out to me the pretty, or ugly, servant girls and dressmakers as we walk in the streets, sighs deeply or sings in falsetto behind every tolerably young-looking woman, and has finally taken me to the house of the lady of his heart, a great black-mustachioed countess with a voice like a fish-crier. Here, he says, I shall meet all the best company in Urbania and some beautiful women. Ah, too beautiful, alas. 
I find three huge, half-furnished rooms with bare brick floors, petroleum lamps, and horribly bad pictures on bright washball blue and gamboge walls, and in the midst of it all, every evening, a dozen ladies and gentlemen seated in a circle, vociferating at each other the same news a year old. The younger ladies in bright yellows and greens fanning themselves while my teeth chatter and having sweet things whispered behind their fans by officers with hair brushed up like a hedgehog. And these are the women my friend expects me to fall in love with. I vainly wait for tea or supper, which does not come, and rush home, determined to leave alone the Urbanian Beaumont. It is quite true that I have no Amori, although my friend does not believe it. When I came to Italy first, I looked out for romance. I sighed like Gotha in Rome for a window to open and a wondrous creature to appear. Perhaps it is because Gotha was a German, accustomed to German frows, and I am, after all, a Pole, accustomed to something very different from frows. But anyhow, for all my efforts, in Rome, Florence, and Siena, I never could find a woman to go mad about either among the ladies, chattering bad French, or among the lower classes, as cute and cold as moneylenders. So I steer clear of Italian womankind, its shrill voice and gaudy toilettes. I am wedded to history, to the past, to women like Lucrezia Borgia, Vittoria Acconamboni, or that Medea de Carpi for the present. Someday I shall perhaps find a grand passion, a woman to play the Don Quixote about, like the pole that I am, a woman out of whose slipper to drink and for whose pleasure to die, but not here. Few things strike me so much as the degeneracy of Italian women. What has become of the race of Faustinos, Morazias, Bianca Capellos? Where discovered nowadays, I confess she haunts me, another Medea de Carpi? Were it only possible to meet a woman of that extreme distinction of beauty, of that terribleness of nature, even if only potential, I do believe I can love her, even to the day of judgment, like any Oliverato de Narni or Frangipani or Prinzavale. And that is the end of part one of the story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to join me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. Or you can buy a copy of the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities, 14 interconnected weird fiction tales that tell an overarching story of love, loss, and revenge. Available in hardcover, paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Or you can buy one of the several other audiobooks I've narrated. They can be found on Audible or the Apple Bookstore. Just search for Mike Queller, C-U-E-L-L-A-R, to find them. Please go and get vaccinated for anything you are eligible for. It's for the good of society, and Mr. Rogers would want you to do it. If you see a racist out and about and doing a racism or standing up for genocide, punch them square in the face. And always remember that things will get worse, and then they will get better. Then worse, then better. This is life, and I will not lie to you by saying that every day will be sunshine, but the sun will shine again. That is a very different thing. That is truth. You will be warm again. The most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.
Thanks so much to all my patrons, Dave Baxter, Robert Biddle, A. Smith, Billy, J.R., Michaela, <gasps> Lauren Maines, John McDonough, David Ricker, Amber Vale, Steve Meyer, Andrew Buchanan, Samantha Hickey, May Lynn, Marco Van Putin, Ineptus Astartes, Matthias Hansen, and Eric Braun. Thank you and all my patrons so much for your support. It is what allows me to keep doing my stupid little show, which I very much enjoy doing. Thank you. <laughs>